0: If you have your Bible, turn to Ezra chapter 4, Ezra chapter 4. Today we'll be reading the same passage of Scripture, same three verses that we read last week. We just did not get to everything that I had intended this past week, and so we're going to continue the thought as best we can, and then, Lord willing, finish up uh, chapter 4 next week. Uh, but this is some very, very important material that we all, young or old, need to, uh, need to have and need to act on. Chapter 4 of Ezra, beginning with verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were, were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel in the heads of their fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ershadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Father, I pray now that as we move through this study, God, how I need your help. I always do. I, I just sense that, that because of the importance of what we're dealing with, the uh, the things that are going on all around us certainly, Lord, uh, never less, but perhaps never more, do we need to develop the spiritual discipline of discernment. Help us to be not only uh, able to know what to do, but just like Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses, have the courage to do it. We thank you for attending this time by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A fifth-grade girl was spending the night with some friends. The mom said, we're going to watch a movie, and she announced the name of the movie, the young girl knew basically not only the name but the content of the movie, and it was going to be an R-rated movie. She was faced with a decision, would she know what to do, and would she have the courage to do it? A 17-year-old young lady was asked out by one of the most popular and best-looking boys in school. She wanted to go out with someone for a long time, and this young man asked her. Now, she was a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. She knew that this young man was not. He wasn't a bad guy. He was just not a believer. Would she have the ability to know the right thing to do, and would she have the courage to do it? You're a part of a church, and the leaders are greeting some people from out of town who are also supposedly fellow believers, but when they meet together with the leaders of your church, the pastor and other leaders, they bring with them a small carved wooden idol from their own culture. Again, they are professing believers, supposedly believing the same things that you do, but they want you to pay homage to this small wooden carved idol and to bless them and their inclusion of this idol into their worship. Would you know the right thing to do? Even as the leader, would you have the courage to do it? We talked last week about discerning. Look at the lead statement. I want to talk about that for just a moment, and we'll get into some of the answers to these questions. These are real-life situations, by the way. But in verses 1 through 2, and then we get to verse 3 in just a few moments, I made this statement. I put down the word syncretism. In syncretism, the goal is not to get you to stop worshiping or serving the true God. In syncretism, the goal is just to get you to add other gods to that worship. Syncretism is a word, kind of a big word, that just means the melding, the blending of two different religious systems that in many ways are opposed into one religious system. I remind you of something that I said last week, and I want to just elaborate on on it for a few moments. Remember this, the world is never your friend. Let me define. There are two different things going on. Sometimes people will take a statement like that, and they'll say, well, you are anti-culture. Now, culture is just the the world in which we live, and every different people group, they have different cultural norms. The things of cultural of culture primarily are benign, okay? Government, entertainment, arts, in those things themselves they are neither good nor bad, but it's when the world system influences the culture that they become destructive. And that's why I say according to the Word of God, that the world, Christian, I'm talking to Christians now, the world is never going to be your friend. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let me reinforce this. The world… It does overlap on the culture, but I'm talking about the world, and this is a thought that I hear among Christians all the time. The world is decaying and in decline. No, it's not. It's already decayed, it is rotten from the inside out. It is spiritually dead and at zero, and it's been that way ever since the Garden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. It will attack you from the moment you become a Christian. You see, before you're a Christian, you're already locked into the world system, but when you came to faith in Christ and you were delivered out of the domain of darkness, the world system, and you were transferred, the Bible says, into the kingdom of light and so at that time, the world becomes your archenemy. I'm talking along with, of course, Satan and your own flesh, but we're talking about the world system right here, right now. We're going to talk about the external attacks next week, but realize that the world's going to come at you in two ways. It's going to come internally. It's going to come subtly. It's going to try to infiltrate your own worship, your own lifestyle as a Christian, the life of, of, of the group of Christians that you meet with, and it's going to come after you. And so that's what I want to do this week. Last week, we introduced this idea of the discipline of discernment. Today, my hope, this is what I'm going to try to do, is to put a bow on it. We're not going to finish, obviously. This is something we need to grow in all the time. But the first kind of attack, again, is subtle. Jesus warned us of wolves in sheep's clothing. And we see this here in the passage of Scripture that I just read to you a few moments ago. Here's what the world is going to try to get you to do, all right? And I'm speaking to every age group. Those three examples that I gave a few minutes ago, that's what the world looks like. It's going to try to get you, listen, to compromise your Christian walk under the disguise of trying to be helpful or cooperate with you. Very suddenly what it's going to say. It won't say this out loud, but it will hint that it's okay to love God but it's also okay to love other things along with him. And that's why verse 1 of Ezra, an Old Testament book, this was written thousands of years ago, and we've got to see that it uses the word adversaries. Now, remember, these were people that lived in the land. They were descendants from Jews who had been left after Israel had gone into captivity. The Assyrian king, he mentions it the spokesman for these adversaries, they had brought other people, pagan people from other lands. They had intermarried, and this was that group of people called adversaries. If you remember, that's where the Samaritans basically came from, the Samaritans of Jesus' day. But let me put it like this. These were the, these were the influencers of the land. And let's bring it forward to today. There are influencers all around you. Paul said it like this, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Ultimately, Satan is the one who's behind all of this. So it's no surprise if his servants, now this might mean the the, the demonic group of, of, of entities. It could also mean the world, his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, the influencers who are going to come against you many times, well, most often, they're not going to come to you with horns and fangs and dripping with blood and all the rest of that. They're going to come to you as influencers, people who are intellectual, people who are funny, people who are entertaining, people who are powerful, people who are rich, people who are cool. Everybody wants to be around somebody who's cool, right? And these are the influencers who will, and again, what is their ultimate goal? Not to get you to stop worshiping God, but to get you to engage in polluted worship, syncretism. And what will end up happening when you allow these other influences to come in, you'll begin to redefine God. You'll say, I believe the Word, I'm… and then fill in the blank with your conservative theology, I'm this or I'm that, but you will begin to redefine God and His holiness, and His justice, and all of the rest of that. Not only that, you'll begin to redefine, watch what's happening in our culture. I'm talking about our culture. We can see this in the world, but I'm talking about where we live. In our culture, influenced by the world, people who are intellectual, and rich, and powerful, and entertaining, and funny, and cool, and all the rest of that. And they're getting us in the church to redefine our standards of truth. And guess what happens when you begin to redefine God? You redefine the standards that He has set for truth. You redefine morality so that you can add your own gods to the mix and feel comfortable doing so. You, you may not see it it may not be as, as as obvious as what I've just said but in verse 2 this is exactly what what is happening when these adversaries come and say uh, now by the way we worship the same god you do and then they mention the king I said this last week who brought them into the land and along with that the god goddess, all of of the gods, all of the goddesses, and particularly the god Inanna or Ishtar. Remember that discussion last week? And so basically the adversaries were saying this, let us come and help you. We just want to help. We just want to cooperate with you. What's the harm in us putting up a couple of bricks alongside of you? Well, if they did that, then they had a stake in what the Jews were building, and therefore, they could influence. And it wouldn't be long before they would say, you know what, let's just bring Ishtar, our goddess, our fertility goddess, a, god, a goddess of abominations. She can just come and sit alongside Yahweh. We don't want her to take over, she's the queen of heaven that was her name. The people of God worshiped Yahweh, but the adversaries said, that's okay, we just want you not to worship Him alone. That's the essence of idolatry. It's not the carved figure necessarily, it may end in that, but the essence of idolatry is the worship of creation and ultimately the worship of self. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 1, 25. I've said these words over and over again, but, but I'll say them again. There are only two religions in the world, and it says it right here in Romans 1, There is the worship of the true God, and then there is the worship of creation, if you've read that, that, that passage of Scripture, it talks about idolatry. When you reject the true God, you're going to fall into the only other religion, which is the worship of self and all of these other things that God has created. And so you make images and you worship that. You exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And that's not new that goes all the way back to the garden. The very temptation that Satan used against Eve and Adam, by the way, was you will be like God. See, okay, uh, third and fourth graders, we're not going to do the big idea this week, but I want you to help me. Our third and fourth graders have been talking about the commandments of God. Can anybody help me with what is the first commandment? What is it? you shall have maybe a few other gods. No, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's interesting. Some of you were introduced to the Blue Letter Bible today. Some of you will be looking at that this next week. Okay, go to the Blue Letter Bible and look up Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, and scroll down to what the Hebrew word before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Show this to your kids. It really, when you look at the, the, the lexicon that's there, here's what it says. Here's what God means by that. You shall have no other gods, period. In front of me, in back of me, beside me, above me, below me. There can be no other goddess or God who comes along and sits even at a lower place than God. God says, I am God and there is no other. Don't let the world pollute your worship. Don't let the world pulled the wool over your eyes. You ever heard that saying? Do you know where that comes from? I, I, I love to do studies of little phrases that we use commonly. I, I found three different stories that could be possible backgrounds, and all of them have a, a little nuance that, of, of what that could mean spiritually. My least favorite is uh, back in the old days when judges wore wigs. You know, the white wigs, they were made out of wool, and sometimes they would slip down over their eyes, so you couldn't judge clearly if you couldn't see. That's one. But the two I like, and I'm going to share just one of those, comes from actually a shepherding background. 1838 was when this was written. This person wrote this. I ha- I never knew this, but a, but a young sheep, if they're not tended to, their wool will tend to grow down over, and it, this sounds gross, but actually grow into their eyes. And if a wise shepherd does not know that and doesn't come in periodically and trim That wool, they will have the wool pulled over their eyes and they can't see. They can't eat and they will ultimately die. Don't let the world pull the wool over your eyes. Verse 2, let, let's look at this. I, I want to go back and and just uh, talk about this. I, by the way, I, I always appreciate when people come and we interact or during the week and say, hey, I, you know, this is something you said. I have a question about this or comment or, or whatever. I, I love that. And uh, always keep that up. That makes me go back and and, and look at it and study it more. But Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households, these were the gatekeepers. These were the leaders. And while the request sounds reasonable for them to build with them, Zerubbabel and the others weren't fooled. They didn't have the wool pulled over their eyes. Here's what they were doing. They were guarding the gospel. Paul says this to Timothy in Timothy chapter 1, follow the sound, the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Zerubbabel and the other leaders were protecting the flock of God that had been charged to them. They were protecting them against error, trying to help discern what is truth and what is error, and then growing out of that what is right and what is wrong. And they had some help. You know, it's just so interesting how things along the way will show us exactly what they went to. If you go back to when Zerubbabel shows up, First, in chapter 3 and verse 2, when they're rebuilding the altar, then you jump forward to probably the key verse in the entire book of Ezra, chapter 7 and verse 10. It's speaking of Ezra, but it's speaking of the principle that they used, all of the leaders. Let's go back and look at, at, at Zerubbabel in the building of the altar. Then arose Zerubbabel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as... It is written in the law of Moses. Zerubbabel was not looking to his own opinion. He was looking to the Word of God. Ezra, later on, it says this of him, "'For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel.'" And that is so necessary for leaders today. I'm not the only Zerubbabel in the room. Every dad, every grandfather, every grandmother, every, every big brother, big sister, you are a Zerubbabel to go back to the Word of God and to protect the people around you. Maybe it's your own family. Maybe it's the people in your ABF or Sunday school class or small group, or maybe it's the people in the church. And here's the real thing. It's to help them to discern not just what is right, but look at what Spurgeon says down at the end of your quotes. Discernment is not a matter of simply discerning the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and and almost right this is something that i personally feel deeply and in our world all around us there are there are people there are leaders there are christian well i'm going to use that with quotes around it I, I, I thought they were Christian, I, I think they still are, but, but listen to me carefully. I don't know if there are some of these influencers, I used that word a minute ago, Christian influencers around us, and I could just click off some big names around us, and and people that I've quoted, and people that I've used their books, and people within our denomination, and and, and you can just go down the line. I don't know if they are true believers that have just erred, and they need to be corrected, or if they're going off the rails, or if they've already gone off the rails. And that's where the discipline of discernment comes in, Please hear this. Falsehood, error, and what results from falsehood? If if you begin to go off the rails, apostasy comes next. If you get hardened in error, then apostasy. But they do not happen overnight. Falsehood and apostasy are incremental. There's an old saying that applies to this, and I think the world and Satan behind the world uses this very carefully. How do you eat an elephant? How does, how does Satan infiltrate major mainline denominations that 30, 40 years ago had the right doctrines the right messages, the right gospel. And today, they are espousing it has to be a different God. They're saying that God approves of certain things, and we're not talking about just belief structures. we're talking about lifestyle as well. The way that Satan and the world fed them the elephant was one spoonful of. At a time. Error. And please hear me. I'm talking to a group of Zerubbables. Okay? I'm one, but you are two. Error left unchecked. Births more error. And we have constantly got to be clipping away so that the wool will not be pulled not only over our eyes, but our family's eyes, the kids in our church, the young people in our church. I had an article on my desk this last week. I copied it off from a, a, a pastor that I really respect. The title of the article was, was this, and this, this is just one example, and there are many talking to kids, this was the title of the article, talking to kids in a, uh, excuse me, talking to kids about gender in a gender-confused age. Good article. But I thought of the probable difference in the title of that article and how that article might have been written or titled by the Puritans. J.C. Ryle, for example, who wrote the classic book on holiness, do you think they would have used the term gender-confused age? This may sound hard, but I think they would have just used the word sin. I mentioned a minute ago that in in our culture now in our culture we have seen a decline in many denominations we've got to watch we've got to watch a certain mentality but folks the groups that believe god's truth about the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and other important things. And I only pick those two because it seems that in recent months and weeks, those things have been brought to us. We're not the ones out picking the fight. But it seems that the groups believing in not just the truth, but also the living out of it are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. So the world is going to, he's going to be patient, Satan is, the world's going to be patient. It will come to you word by word, person by person, leader by leader, family by family, and then the group. And that's why the response is so important. Verse 3, you must be discerning and decisive. When faced with error And wrong. Those are two different things. Truth and error, right and wrong. Do you understand why those are two different things? I can have all of the truth, I can be doctrinally orthodox, and yet yet not be living out in a right way. I can be living in error. The response when you read it, I read it a few moments ago it either seems depending on where you are blunt and judgmental narrow exclusive or it will seem knowledgeable and discerning and wise and we we don't get this right here but we know that the samaritans i'm going to go ahead and call them that they were greatly offended i'm going to paraphrase what probably what was going on in their mind you're not nice what they wanted to hear was something that we hear sometimes today. Sure, come on in. We're welcoming. We're affirming. We're, watch this, non judgmental, no matter what you believe or how you live. Would you know what to do in each one of those situations that I mentioned a minute ago? Said they were real life situations. One of our daughters in the fifth grade spent the night with a family, good family. I, I still think that. The mom had pulled out a, a, a movie, and we had talked about certain things with, with our children, about what to watch and what not to watch. Would she know what to do? Would she have, would she have the courage to do it? You're the fifth grade. I mean, what, what does a fifth grader do? Well, you call for reinforcements. You call mom or dad, and she did. And we said, sweetheart, that is not appropriate. Um, you can come home or you can tell the mom that you need to go in the other room and read a book. And she told the mom, and the mom picked another movie. May not always ha- it would turn out like that, but she did in that case. The 17-year-old was another daughter who wanted to date a very, very great, he was just a great guy, popular, good-looking, you know, all the rest of those outward things that the world looks at, but he was not a believer. She really, really wanted to go out with him, and we had talked about that, would she know the right thing to do, and would she, would she have the courage to do it? What did she do? She called for reinforcements. <laughs> she sat down and talked to us, and we said, Sweetheart, you, you know. You know what we've talked about. And she made the decision not to date that young man. Oh, the story, well, that's kind of far-fetched about the, the church where they brought a, carved idol in? Are we talking about here in Ezra? No, we're talking about last year, about a year ago in the Catholic Church. When the Pope, Pope Francis, entertained the Vatican, a group from South America, Amazonians, who brought their goddess, carved image, a fertility goddess, Pachamama, set it in the garden, bowed down, worshiped, while the Pope and the others were standing there, and then he blessed. They came forward and asked him to bless that. Here's a verse that you might want to look at. This is about everything. This is about business partnerships. This is about everything in life, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Is that? Wow. Does that sound judgmental? For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? I mean, Paul is actually bringing some questions in to to solidify his argument. Don't be unequally yoked. Why? Because there's no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There's no fellowship between light and darkness. There's no accord with Christ and Pachamama or Belial or Asherah. Asherah was the goddess of choice, the, the, the pillars, the high places in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple with idols? I said this last week, don't, and please, young people, please hear me on, on this, the dating thing and the business partnerships or the, what our church, I, I've just found that, that going after social concerns makes very strange bedfellows. And so we have to be very, very careful that we don't violate an incredibly important principle. And to do otherwise, for me personally, would be spiritual malpractice. Okay, so I, I just want to talk about this because it's a necessary thing. Were these folks and am I being judgmental? Were they being judgmental? Okay, both are true. I had a yes and I had a no. Okay, watch this. Now watch this. Here, I, I shared this last week. Used to be the most commonly known verse among, uh, in our culture was John 3.16 for God so loved the world. Now, it's judge not that you be not judged. Um, is that true? Is that first true? Yes. It is true, but watch out, okay? I'll ask the question, was Zerubbabel and the others and the other examples that I've given you, were they judging or were they discerning? discerning. Now, again, listen to this. The word used in that, this is another blue-letter Bible thing, okay? Look it up, Matthew 7-1. Not not right here. We'll get a blast on our internet right now. Uh, But look it up, because here's what it means. Judge, make a distinction, determine, select, choose, measure. Are we not judging all of the time? Every decision you make, are you not making, are you measuring, are you making a determination? Sure you are. Everyone does that all the time. So let me say this, and I, I hear it a lot. I remember an uncle one time, and he, he, was, uh, he was lost, and uh, he was confronted because of some things that w- were found in the house and his stash, and I, I just won't go into detail about that. But when he was confronted by my aunt, his wife, guess what he said? You're judging me. That is one of the easiest ways to get out of taking responsibility for something. So, parent-child relationships. A parent asks a child to not do something or whatever, gets on to them about it, and it's so easy, I'm not, I'm not just limiting to parent to child, but many times a child will say, you're judging me. I'm not going to ask for hands, but parents, have you ever had your child say that to you? Well, here, here's the response, back at you. Because in making that evaluation, what have you done? You've just judged me. But here's what Jesus was saying. Read the context. He is saying, don't condemn other people for the things that you do. If you're a liar, don't condemn someone for lying. Because later on, he says this in several places, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Jesus did it, Paul did it, and we need to do it. If you don't judge with righteous judgment everything that I say every Sunday, then you do not have the Berean spirit. I want you to have the Berean spirit. Certainly not in a condemning way, but judging, discerning, measuring everything according to the Word of God. Jesus seems to me he called a particular group, and usually this was reserved for uh, religious hypocrites. He called one group a brood of vipers. Do you remember that? He said to, a, to another group, he said, woe to you, woe to you. He said to an individual, one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan. That's pretty strong language. He overturned tables and drove out money changers from the temple with a whip. Paul got into the act. He called one guy a son of Satan. I've always thought the the story in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about the young man that was allowed to remain committing adultery. It was a very gross form of adultery within the church. The church wasn't doing anything about it, and Paul did not say exercise church discipline on him, which they should have done, Here's what he said, I've decided what to do. I'm going to turn this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved. That's a different kind of deliverance ministry, isn't it? Paul called out Peter at Galatia. Peter had the right theology, but his lifestyle was going against it, so he called him out. He said, Peter, you, you've, got, you've got the right stuff up here, but you're not living it out. I, I had a person uh, a couple of weeks ago or a while back that said, I, you know, pastor, don't give me all of that theology. I just care about salvation. Folks, this is a gospel issue. This is ultimately about Salvation. Next month, at the end of the month, anybody know what we'll be observing or celebrating to one degree or another? A thing called Reformation Day. Do you know what that's about? Many years ago, the Catholic Church was confronted by a young monk named Martin Luther. He was not perfect, but he confronted the church about their mixture of truth and error. Confronted them specifically about a thing called indulgences that grew out of their theology about salvation. And so he wrote some stuff, nailed it to a door, and the Protestant Reformation started. And here's basically what he was confronting. The Catholic Church said, and still says, salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They just added a word, plus. And that's why a monk by the name of Tetzel went out and sold indulgences. If you've never heard of that, basically people who were living in sin, oh, you don't need to confess that sin. You just need to pay the church some money, and I'll write you this slip of paper so that you can indulge in your sin. And that's how Martin Luther got involved. He ran across one of his parishioners who was drunk one day and said, what are you doing? And he pulled out his slip of paper and said, I've got an indulgence. I've got my fire insurance policy in my back pocket. I'm going to heaven. I can live like that. And Martin Luther wisely studied the scriptures and he said, Catholic Church, I will agree with you with the exception of one word. And When I get to this word, I want you all to say it with me. It is the hallmark of a gospel salvation message. Martin Luther said, I too believe that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you, church. That's the essence of salvation. By the way, to this day, the Council of Trent has pronounced a curse, anathema, on anybody who believes that doctrine, that salvation is by faith alone. So what do you do? How do we develop it? Let's look for a few minutes at a couple of things. We're about to wrap this up. Uh, Discernment is a skill that must be practiced and developed. It's not an inherent ability. There is a spiritual gift of discerning of spirits. We're not talking about that here. We're talking about everyone from the youngest to the oldest practicing, developing the discipline of discernment so that you can know right from wrong and truth from error. Hebrews chapter 5 says this, about this we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Please, God, I, don't, I just don't want him ever to say that about heritage, that we've become dull of hearing. For by this time, though this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, now watch what he's, he's driving to here, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It must be practiced. It can be be improved, but you've got to start somewhere. You, listen, you've got to be motivated to love God and to love His truth. And that's the only way you can hope to grow in discernment. You, you've got to love God more than things, to love God more than you even love people. To love God more than you love yourself. To have a passion for His holiness. To keep yourself pure from sin. Look at the second statement there. Discernment is based on a right understanding of God's Word and His way. I'm going to go back to this verse a minute ago. Here it is. Set your heart to study His Word, but not just to study it. Study it to do it, to live it and then once you're living it to teach it to others, young or old. That's what he did. He went back to God's Word. God's Word is the very source of truth, so that when you encounter those situations and, and many others, that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that you will not only know the right thing to do, but you will have the courage to do it. Last thing there, discernment must be be applied. I'll end with another fable or a story like the sheep. Have you ever heard the expression, a camel with his nose under the tent? It's an old Arabian expression. The picture is that on a cold night, the guy who lived in the tent had a camel outside and the camel just wanted to get his nose barely under the covering of the tent so he could keep it warm. But the next night, it wasn't just the camel's nose, it was the camel's head. The next night, it was half his body, and by the next night, the whole camel was in the tent with the man, and it wouldn't leave. Pray that for heritage. I pray for it for you, our students, our children, our mature adults, as well as all others. If you sense that the camel has his nose under your tent, go outside and grab him by the tail and pull the camel out. Don't let him get there. You know where you start? It's the gospel message you're here today and you you don't know jesus christ oh you've heard of jesus christ you've attended church but you've never seen your own sins as an affront to the to to the holy god and jesus christ is the only one whom god sent so that he could save you from your sins if you have seen that today if you do see that today is the day of salvation repent of your sins believe in jesus christ so that you can grow in the discipline and the application of discernment. Father, I thank you again for your word. I pray that now as we uh, wrap up this time by singing, by sharing together what is going to be happening this next week and how we can be meaningfully involved, I pray that you would guide us through not only this this immediate moment for those who need truly to be saved, but I pray that you would help each person in this room to have the spirit of a Zerubbabel knowing the right thing to do and having the courage to do it. So I thank you for that and pray that you would help us as we respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.